From Studio P, Sausalito, home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. The number one comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast commentator, Mark Hershon. Yes, it is I... Mark Hershon, your comedy podcast podcaster, bringing you comedy podcasts from around the internet. This is episode 15. Welcome back. And uh, some news for fans of Succotash. We are going to try and bring you more Succotash more often. How about that? When producer engineer Joe Polino and I started putting Succotash together earlier this year, we uh, we really enjoyed doing it, but uh, we kind of had to do it in between uh, our, our regular stuff, and we still do. No one's paying us. We have no sponsors except for Henderson's Pants. Uh, so we just do this out of the love of what we're doing for right now. Uh, you can donate, by the way. We have a donate button at SuccotashShow.com. If you want to throw us a few bucks, that would be fantastic to offset some of our time and effort here. But um, at the same time, we realize that uh, we can build up more of a listenership and bring you more fun stuff if we do shows more often. The way we're going to try to do this is we are going to offer uh, some more interview style shows interspersed with our clip heavy shows. So we'll still bring you the clip shows. Uh, you know, we try to squeeze in like 12 to 15 clips a show, which is a lot of clips, but also to try and maximize our time, we're going to start featuring some interviews with, uh, friends of mine that are comedians, also some podcasters and some comedian podcasters, other people from show business. So this show is going to be one of those interview shows where we'll be talking to comedian Fred Stoller, and then we will intersperse every other show with our clip-heavy shows. Before we get to um, to Fred today, uh, tell you a few other things. When we do these interview shows, as I said, we'll still uh, feature a few Podcasts. We'll also have uh, the Burst of Durst with comedian Will Durst. We'll have some classic Henderson pants spots. And um, we hope you like it. Let us know uh, whether you do or whether you don't. You can always write us at mark, M-A-R-C, at succotashshow.com. You can also call the Succotash hotline at 818-921-7212. That's 818-921-7212. And let us know what you think. Before we get into the uh, uh, the show part of the show today, I want to mention that we have apparently inspired at least one new comedy podcast to get going, and that's from our friend and loyal listener, Ed Wallach. Ed's a uh, aspiring comedian in Northern California. He's going to begin producing his show called Don't Quit Your Day Cast. We wish him a lot of luck with that, and we look forward to playing a clip or two once that show drops. Let's get to our show. As I said, Fred Stoller is the subject of our interview today. But before we get to the interview, let's play a podcast. This is from a radio show and podcast out of Philadelphia and South Jersey called The Comedy Point. She has many tour dates coming on. You can find her at insultcomic.com. Lisa, everybody knows her. Everybody loves her. Welcome. Lisa Lampanelli. Hi, Lisa. It's Barack. I'm a huge fan. How are you? Oh, God, that sounds like a foreigner to me. (laughs) (laughs) Big time, big time. I can't even tell tell what kind of smelly potpourri of foreign you are. Which one are you? I'm I'm pretty swarthy. Um, Oh, is a swarthy Middle Easterner? Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, Goody. I know you just got married. 
I have to say, I, I have feel a kinship with him because of his distinguishing physical feature because I haven't been able to wear briefs since middle school. It's like a tourniquet. <laughs> I know. It is so horrifying. I, if you guys don't know what we're talking about, um, swarthy weirdo over there has a big sack like my husband, Jimmy Big Balls, and it is rather off-putting. You must admit that it is, it is grotesque. I mean, the first time I saw them, I was like, oh, my God, your balls are in your ass. What just happened? They're, so don't, never lay on your back. That's advice I have to you. Never lay on your back. Please welcome to the show, Jim Norton, everyone. Did she at least show up with cupcakes every now and again? She never showed up, thank God. She would just call obsessively. Was it because of that that hot high school picture? Do you mean the uh, my CD cover? Is that uh, the reason? With, you mean with the with the bowl hairdo, the the Asian railroad worker look I had when I was a sophomore? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was atrocious. But that's that's why I started doing comedy because it's like you know there's so much self loathing, and anybody thinks I'm too mean to myself, like yeah, you ought to be nice to yourself. Look at that photo. Like, that's... <laughs> That's who I am at my core. I'm just that dorky zilch with thick glasses, and I kind of know it. So um, that's what my high school was like. That's where all the self-hatred comes from, so it is justified. And without further ado, uh, we want to welcome our first guest on our extended new format, our three-hour show every Tuesday night, 5 to 8 p.m., comedian extraordinaire, Sandra Bernhardt. Sandra, how are you? Hello. Great. I'm on your extended play. <laughs> you are? Uh, yeah, you are. I'm on, on your EP. It's just going to go on and on and on. <laughs> it's the kind of interview you can have sex by. Well. Yes. <laughs> You're listening to The Comedy Point with Soul Joel, featuring co-host Christine Meehan, head writer Barack Azun, the one and only Mad Dog Manor, and yours truly, Soul Joel. So whether you're listening on WIFI 1460 AM in Burlington, New Jersey, BeMoreRadio.com, TheTalkSuperStation.com, Kansas City Online Radio, or on iTunes, we appreciate you tuning in. So check out our website at TheComedyPoint.com. You can email the show at thecomedypoint at gmail.com. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at The Comedy Point. So for talk radio with a comedic twist, please enjoy The Comedy Point. All right, that is The Comedy Point, And uh, they've told you everything you need to know about how to find them. So uh, thanks for doing that. Uh, saves me having to do it. I do want to give a shout-out to the booker on their show, uh, Jen Romoro who is very kind to us on Twitter through her House of Vaughn Twitter feed. And uh, so thanks, Jen. Uh, again, you can find them at ComedyPoint.com. Let's get to our featured interview this episode. Uh, we'll break this into a couple of parts. But this is Fred Stoller. Fred's been doing stand-up starting on the East Coast for years, but has been seen in TV and movie roles. You might know him as uh, Cousin Gerard in uh, Everyone, Everybody Loves Raymond, for instance, as well as having his distinctive voice heard in such animated projects as Handy Manny and The Penguins of Madagascar, also The Superhero Squad Show. This last year, he co-wrote and starred in Fred and Vinny, which was a low-budget movie directed by Steve Scrovan, in which he sort of plays a version of himself, really. And that's actually how we got to be better acquainted. Fred and I have actually known each other off and on sort of through the comedy world peripherally for years. But when his movie was starting to play the festival circuit earlier this year, he saw that I was a regular contributor to the Huffington Post and asked if I'd review the movie. So I said, yeah, I'll review it. I, if it's bad, I'm going to review it. Either way, he didn't care. He just wanted me to take a look, see what I thought. And it actually was a, a really 
cool little movie. It's funny. It's sad, uh, touching. Um, it's really, if you get a chance to see it, uh, definitely check it out. That's Fred and Vinny. But in exchange, I said, okay, I'm going to review your movie. But if I get to LA, uh, you got to make time to be on my podcast. So that is how we got the interview here from when I was down there last week. So here's part one of my interview with Fred Stoller. All right. I'm here with Fred Stoller in his, uh, his Los Angeles apartment. Right. The one that uh, been here a long time and the one in the movie you saw, but someone helped me fix it up so the chicks will come and you could tell <laughs> metrosexual friends helped me fix it up. And, and I've given up thinking any fixing up furniture is going to change my life. But in the movie I lent you, it was funkier. Yeah. More pathetic. This, <laughs> this is, uh, yes, this is this, me this is thinking fixing it up. Definitely lived in now. How long have you lived in Los Angeles first? I've been here like 20-something years, 88, so as they say, do the math. But uh, <laughs> I did stand up in the comedy boom. Mm -hmm. You know, in New, Jer in New York, you could make a living marginal doing New Jersey, Long Island, Connecticut. And I was very low-key and subtle. And, but you could, you didn't have to do long, you know, you just, uh, you know, I, 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 I was with Gilbert Gottfried and, you know, and a bunch of people and, um, and like I said, I, I, um. So did you do like the one night gigs? Uh, the one night yeah, in could, Jersey? Like I said, and, yeah, Jersey, like Long Island, Connecticut, these $60 jobs, these weekends, and once in a while you do a college and the road was just doing weekends. It was if you kind of spoiled, like Washington, D.C., Connecticut. You stay in a hotel. And I, I, I never really had a headline because, like I said, I was low-key and subtle. And, you know, and and then I, I would sometimes do places in Jersey. And some guy like John Mulroney, I would bomb, you know. And some guy like John Mulroney was, jumps up and down and punches himself or whatever and is dirty. <laughs> He's blowing the room away in a bar. And I, I hate hearing them loving him after they hated me, so I'd be walk but there's nowhere to go, so I'd be walking on the highway in Jersey or just walking aimlessly in the streets and you hear the place still screaming for him. So I did those and but then when I, I you know, you, you think, oh uh, you know, I did, I did Letterman. I did Letterman the they the space shuttle blew up in eighty six. Oh that's that's they, yeah, wow. They called me last minute because everyone was depressed and canceled it, and so no one saw it. I flew out to LA. To and that was your that was your debut. Yeah. Oh man. It was not. You know, Letterman goes. It's a depressing day in American history. We don't want to be irreverent. We do a show anyway. Here's Fred Stoller, and they scream me. Don't do anything depressing. <laughs> I may have done one before, but yeah, it was. It was a non-eventful thing. So how, how did you develop your act? I mean, you're, you're with some of these guys that are more sort of loud and demonstrative and whatnot. And you know, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Larry Miller, they're, they're not as loud, but yeah, over 10. And I think, you know, I was a, a very depressed, shy kid. I was never, like, demonstrative or funny. I never said, ooh, I should be a comedian. But I knew the real world wasn't for me. I didn't know how you pursue things. And I'd see, like, character actors... You know, like Jimmy Walker or Per Edelman or, you know, and, you go, and someone said, oh, they did an act, the improv, then they go on The Tonight Show, then you get on a sitcom. So I pictured um, being on The Tonight Show saying, oh, this is just my second time doing stand-up, and then, but it didn't happen that way. So it just seemed accessible before yeah. the comedy boom. 
So I, I was like, you know, my mother wasn't supportive of me. She didn't understand. Because comedy, like 30 years ago, isn't like now where everyone is a comic or yeah. something. So I just, just talked about, you know, my mother and, you know, putting me down. And, and I couldn't look at the audience. I just had did weird non-secular one-liners with my head down. And, and that sort of became my persona. Just, just like sort of... Steve Wright, but not the kind of like stream of conscious, you know, yeah. more like a depressed Steve Wright, or more like <laughs> doing personal, real stuff about, you know, unsupportive mothering, just saying things that really happen. So developing that act, it, your your sort of goal was to get on the comedy stage, be seen by somebody, be plugged into a sitcom. Or a movie, yeah. And or a movie. So I think what happened is I was in this false comfort zone, and the comedy boom exploded, and I'm getting, like, stage time, making a marginal living, you know, and people think that you're funny. So I thought, hey, you get noticed. And it didn't really get me to the next level. And then and then I um, came to L.A. And what, what motivated the move to L.A.? David Brenner had a short-lived show. Yeah. And I was supposed to be, he's like Chris Elliott's sidekick guy. Oh, okay. Was it a talk show? Yes. Nightlife with David Brenner. And it it didn't work out for many reasons. The show didn't work out. But um, these other writers were resentful that, you know, I had had to do monologue jokes. And I was hired just to be the sidekick guy. They were all mad at me. And it's just so silly. And, um, but um, through that I got an agent and they had a connection out here for pilots okay. audition. So in 88, I, I came here, stayed with another comic who said, nothing personal, but can you leave? I don't like people around me. So I like to, took the first place I saw. Just I never planned on moving to L.A., but I was getting auditions, and you just have that feeling, I got all I can get out of New York. Like I'm not one of these guys that, like David Tell or Colin Quinn that love like doing... 10 sets a night and want to have comedy albums. I never fantasized, you know, being at Carnegie Hall or George Carlin. I just was a weird, quirky guy that sort of did these jokes. So I never, yeah, I, so, yeah, I never want, I never was loving being up there an hour. And and it sucked. When I moved to L.A., you didn't have the circuit, like in New York, to make a living. To make a living in L.A., you had to leave L.A. And all of a sudden I was, headlining, having to do an hour in Arizona and all these places, and my act, they'd always switch him at the middle, because they'd see I had a TV credit or two, and think, oh, he could headline, but it was, like I said, low-key, they liked the aggressive middle, local guys better, and it really was depressing to stay in some comedy condo, and, you know, and the, the middle guy sleeps on the couch, you can't watch TV late at night, and you get there, and you know, the cook is supposed to pick you up at the airport and forgets to pick you up. So, so it was really, I really got traumatized to stand up because I'd have to go on the road Tuesday, day to Sunday, which I didn't have to do in New York. And you couldn't really, you, you had to do local jokes, you had to cater to them. So, and were you getting yourself these bookings or was an agent doing this for you? A little bit of both. I, you know, I, I, I had, you know, when I got with William Morris originally, they had a comedy department and, you know, people find out about you, and, you know, at first we're excited, because I did a bunch of, like, five-minute TV spots, and my act would hold up for five or six minutes, but, like I said, when you're up there on the road, 
you got to be aggressive and love being up there an hour and want to do it. And so I started getting burnt out to it and just getting away from it and then wanting to get more into character acting and guest spots and sitcoms and voiceovers and stuff like now, that. Now, have you taken any acting classes? You know, I did. I did. But I think that um, in hindsight, it's like a cult. It's just like all these acting teachers prey on vulnerable people and they manipulate you for money and just to drop names of who they coached, that you need them. And I took these classes, and they were kind of stupid. Um, nowhere in life did I beat myself up as I did in acting class. Mm -hmm. And they make you scream or shove each other. Dumb, nebulous stuff. All these acting teachers were failed actors who found a way to just, they're just blowhards and sound like they know what they're saying. And what about in New York? Were you had you taken any acting? Yeah, in New York you know, the same school? thing. When I was doing stand-up, I took an acting class. And again, I don't really know what it did for me. Again, mm -hmm. it's all nebulous. I think it gave me confidence that I could be funny and entertaining without my act and without being this low-key weird guy. It was okay for that. But again, acting is like therapy. It's like a lot of things. I would say... You could go, it's okay to get a foundation for six months. You don't want to be a permanent stu student or permanent, yeah. you know, but then again, it's nebulous. It's not like learning how to, you know, fix an engine or, you know, or fix a microphone. It's just, it's just nebulous. Yeah. What, I think it's a little silly. What about in school? Did you, I mean, what were your aspirations? You know, I, I, I was always paralyzed by the real world and scared and I knew the real world wasn't for me. I, 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 I didn't know what I wanted to do, so that's why, you know, when I was young, I just found out about stand-up, not because I was funny, but as a way to open things up. Hmm. And so, I never, like I said, I, I, I never really, I went to community college two years just to get my mother off my back, and then I quit, and she freaked out, you're going to get killed in the war, they take people in the war who quit college, and... She didn't understand wanting to be a stand-up. I could understand that as a very depressed kid, so I'm sure it made no sense. So <laughs> I really, I really wasn't a student, or I, I again, yeah, yeah. Now, were you a student of comedy? Did you find when you were a kid or a teenager? Did you ever, you know, watch specific comedians or anything like that? Yeah, like um, Buddy Hackett, or I did like in the '70s. Remember guys like Ed Bluestone, sure. Billy Braver. Yeah. You know, Elaine Boozler, um, Frat and Ajay. I, 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 I went through a phase where I watched them because I kind of knew I wanted to go that path. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, 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 I loved National Lampoon magazine and Mad mm -hmm. magazine. And so I just, you know, I was, but I never, I, I like character because, like I said, I liked. Those 70s movies, sure. you know, like Al Pacino even, or those George Siegel kind of movies with Ron Liebman. Mm -hmm. So I'm more like quirky 70s movies is what I grew up with. And yeah, yeah. I wanted to be the weird, like weird misfit actors and wanted to be that guy. Yeah, kind of the guy comes in, has a couple of really slam bam scenes that yeah, yeah. You, know, you really notice them, but they don't do yeah, anything exactly. crazier over the top. Right. Yeah. You know, they don't have that now with character actors. Now, if a, someone stands out as a character actor, they don't stay that. They they try to be a leading man like Giamatti, Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm -hmm. all of them, you know? Yeah. In the old days, you would be just that guy. 
but then like Oliver Platt, you know, then they if they stand out as a character actor, then they want to be their own per, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I always wanted to be the guy that doesn't make waves. The funny guy pops up, but yeah, not yeah. So what have you done to survive sort of the sort of the roller coaster of comedy itself? You know, there was the there was the boom as you mentioned, kind of going into the really kind of into the early '90s, and then it started to drop way off. Uh, and it sounds like you had kind of given up work on the road anyway, which is where most of the comedy... Well, yeah, like, um, 93-ish, I, I just got to be too painful to just call up the Laugh Factory here. Nothing this week, Fred, I'm sure they do it now with computers now, but you you give your availability, call up, and you hear no spots, and like I said, maybe I was spoiled, you know, getting spots effortlessly during the comedy boom, and I didn't love it enough to, after making a living from it in L.A., just do every bookstore. Remember the, yes. the Borders? Oh, yeah. Guys like, and I respect them, Kindler and, and Rick Overton, love doing it so much. They'll do it every place they can, every, you know, for no money or not. I, I wasn't that guy, you know. Yeah. And um, I, I, I don't love it enough to do it. You know, there needs to be an agenda like, oh, maybe I'll have a special, you know. I don't have that ego that that I need to do it five times a night. You know, they have these coffee houses, and you know what I mean? So you're never trying to craft a body of work that you could say, okay, I'm going to go to HBO, or I'm going to go to Comedy Central and try and sell them an hour. No, and, and if I was doing it, it would be because of that. So yeah, it, was, uh, it became really difficult in, in the 90s. It's just hanging out at clubs and doing the same jokes and buying for stage time. And I felt I did that. Yeah. I, I, felt, I felt I took it as far as I could take it. I, I wasn't going to be a guy that's going to have albums out. And, if, yeah, if you're like, like, you know, the late Rich Jenny or Dom Herrera, those guys pound it out and do hour sets on the road. Sure. I always loved when the light was on that I could get off. So it didn't, it never felt that right. So... Eventually, uh, I just went through a weird phase where I was really broke and just eating a chicken pot pie each day and depressed and just not sure what's next, but I couldn't keep doing it. Or or I would take like some job on the road yeah. and be really relieved if I could get out of it. I don't know why I would take it, but then hope something would come up. <laughs> I couldn't say no, and I would think, okay, in a few, a few weeks before, I'm going to try to get out of this. Or, you oh. know, yeah, I did... Just things, it just didn't feel right. So I started little by little getting like little acting parts with the auditioning thing. Like yeah. Murphy Brown, I got one part and then it led to like six other parts. And <clears throat> those uh, producers, then they worked on other sitcoms like Suddenly Susan or The Naked Truth or um, some other stuff. And then I, I, I was in a little bit of a niche for a while. Now it's the golden age of sitcoms. They don't have... They used, before, they had all these reality shows and, and 2020 and 48 Hours. There was like every night of the week sitcoms. Yeah. So there was a lot, a lot of delivery guys and clerks for me to play and things popping up. So I went through a phase where I was doing that and... I was glad to be off the road, but it wasn't really creatively fulfilling because you're waiting, you know, you're, you're on eggshells or on someone else's show, and there'd be some great ones like a Seinfeld, one Raymond, a, 
Norm Macdonald show, yeah. some real fun ones. Yeah. But for the most part, you're like a mule doing a flip or, you know, just doing a trick, you know. And um, some little movie parts. So I fell into this little niche of this weird guy that pops up in things. Yeah. So that was better than being on the road. Then some voiceover stuff. Uh, I did like a kid's animation show for like four years, Handy Manning, right. Tools of yeah. Talk. Even wrote a few of those episodes. So that afforded me to... Well, I'm skipping a part. I wrote on Seinfeld this season. I fell into that. Oh, right. So that got me off the road. I saved the money, but then didn't get asked back. Then did a lot of guest spots because I did a Seinfeld. And, uh, and how did you like the, the sitcom writing gig? It can be you know, a grind. I I, well, I was never this guy. There's a guy, Mike Rowe, that watched Rob... What's it called? Uh, Rob Petrie, Dick Van Dyke, mm-hmm. who wanted to be that guy sitting around the table. I don't like being around a lot of loud, aggressive writers and yelling. So I never wanted to be that. Um, I fell into it because um, I was at a surprise party for Larry David in 94. And everyone was, I was just telling some stories, some hard luck story with a woman. And he goes, how come you never wrote a Seinfeld? I said, well... Everyone's written Seinfeld spec scripts. Everybody. Everyone thought they had an idea for one. He goes, right, well, nothing will happen, but I will read it. And I wasn't going to do it. But but then I thought there were people I would kill to have Larry David read their Seinfeld spec script. And so I wrote it, and I lucked out, got on staff that season. And it was, uh, it was, it was a, a great experience, but it was the way they ran it is Jerry and Larry... Uh, almost did everything, like they did the editing, they did the casting, they're on the floor, they're rewriting scripts, so it was very isolating, everyone's trying to get their own stories on, I don't think the other writers liked me, I was not one of them, and just but he, weird, had a, he had a number of stand-ups on staff. He did, you know, he recycled them, yeah, there was one season, there were four, and they didn't come back, they just tell all their stories, and then it dries out, so then I was on, so he did have some stand-ups on staff, but I was just more this weird character actor guy walking around by myself, asking questions, and and they, again, they don't want to help. No one was really my comrade there mm. the season I was on, and people are just trying to get their own stories on, and yeah. so it was like I said, isolating was a vacuum. I went, I couldn't write stories till I got them approved, and. I couldn't get a hold of Jerry or Larry, and I remember I was just napping in my office until I knew what to do. So it was a unique experience, but people think I'm retarded that I didn't use that uh, credit to parlay to write on Veronica's Closet and other shows. I guess I could have made money, but I, I just don't think I could walk around just writing. Maybe if it fell in my lap like Seinfeld, but to write on some show like the King of Queens, where I, I don't understand, you know, hey, you know, married life and honey and I'm a lug and, you know, I, I wouldn't fit in so good, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm sure it's good money, but it's it, it's kind of corporate and you got to be loud and schmooze people. And But did you have the experience of, of writing uh, an episode on Seinfeld? Or yeah, I, I got an episode and a half on. Okay. And how was that experience in terms of... of I mean, did you did you enjoy the the actual writing part? Yeah. Oh, yes, I did. I, I really enjoyed when you're writing. But like I said, until you write, you've got to get four storylines approved and a hold of them. In pre-production, it wasn't as hard to get a hold of Jerry and Larry. But then once they start filming, 
like I said, they're on the floor, they're shooting, they're casting, and you're on your own just walking around like, and no one really liked me, you know, I was kind of, uh, so like, um, I, uh, but once, it was very fun when they, yeah, did my, my scripts, just two of them. That is part one of my interview with Fred Stoller. Be back with part two in just a moment. Let's take a break with the music of Coupla and their single, I'm Going.
That is the music of Cupla, C-U-P-L-A. Ran into them on Twitter when they mentioned I might enjoy hearing some of their music. That's a single from their album that's in progress right now. That's called I'm Going. And uh, I said, sure, I like it. And in fact, I'll play it. So there you go. If you want to find more about them, it's Cupla, C-U-P-L-A dot Bandcamp dot com. Let's get back to Fred Stoller. First, I'm going to play you a little piece of The Gate Show, which is Fred's internet series where he plays a delusional security guard who mans a gate in a Hollywood studio parking lot and believes that he's also the host of his own talk show. And he presses people that are driving in to be his guests. In this case, it's Bob Saget. Hi. Bob Saget, just want to get on the lot, please. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Saget. Since I'm hosting a show and you've hosted shows, any advice for me? I just want to get on the lot. This is not. There's no. There's no show here. This. You're a. You're a security guard. Hello, cameras rolling. What shall we? I like it's funny. There's no show here. This is a security booth. Okay, uh, Bob will have to finish that great story some other time. Give him his gift bag. The words will get out and tell his other celebrity friends about our show. This has obviously been used many times before by other people. This oh, is. It's your swag bag for being on our show. There's stuff you could use to tell your celebrity this is, friends. This is crap. I don't. No, no, no. There's cool stuff. Look deeper. I just I just cut myself on this. Well, there's Neosporin for that, huh? See? Tell all your friends. There's no lid on it. I mean, seriously, you have a job, but, but get one. Open the gate. Okay. Please. Bye. That went well. Remember, I'm Fred, and I man the gate to great entertainment. Tune in tomorrow. You idiot! Bob Saget had a great story. Now he's not gonna want to be on our show again. Go okay. on the East Gate. They get all the great guests. Yeah, because you're messing up. Maybe you should transfer to the East Gate. That would work. Huh? Don't tell me this is my home. I'm not moving. My Conan had to. So after Seinfeld, um, I, you know, I'd say I was able to play my dad's gift cat, a cat. <laughs> you know, because I said, I'm off the road now and just concentrate on what I wanted to do. I thought it was acting and and it helped me just stay in town, not do jobs that make me miserable. And and I was uh, just broke into some of the, the voiceovers and sitcom stuff. And didn't have to eat chicken pot pies. Every day, every yeah. Day. That must have been nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So got me off the road. And uh, and what did, what did mom think about the career at that point? She she didn't understand why I wasn't coming back to Seinfeld. You know, she 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 liked it that that part. Oh, he's a writer. She could understand it. Yeah, you know, so mm-hmm. and she liked when I was on the nanny because in the retirement community they, they all like the nanny. Oh, okay. That she could understand, but yeah, she she yeah, it's just exhausting. Like if I'm on a show, telling her when I'm on it or if the park gets cut or stuff, he wants streets. Mitch, my cat's kissing for treats. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a... Uh, he's very, uh, Mitchell. But, uh, yeah, so, um... And why is he named Mitchell? Any particular reason? Just very arbitrary. <laughs> it's not a schmucky enough of a regular name. It's a little bit off. So, you were getting some acting work, mm-hmm. it sounds like. Um, and so tell me, what sort of bridged the gap between that period and then uh, coming up with uh, with the movie. Did you, had you written well, other movie scripts before then? You know, I had written other scripts and they were never really that good because I wasn't really writing in my voice. I 
I thought I knew it. You know, a contact with ski movies or Martin Lawrence movies. And in this business, you meet people, a director, oh, I'm going to put you in everything I do and cut to him in nothing he does. Or, you know, oh, write the script and, and then he doesn't read it. So, and, you know, I was more neurotic, like asking people, is this a good idea for a script? Is this something they've done? So then, like I said, I, I, I got this animation gig and it was great because just as I got this show that went four and a half seasons, Handy Manny, this preschool show, my first regular job in show business in any way. And I even wrote, I wrote like seven of the episodes. Okay. You know, just because I was there and I had the ear. And did you do more than one part or were you just your main? No, I don't have any range. I just talk like this. <laughs> I was the nervous monkey wrench. So, <laughs> it, you know, just, I got lucky because just when I got that job, and the job's over, but yeah, that, stand, that sitcom world dried up. Yeah. It was replaced by, like I said, the reality. Reality. Sure. Every and new shows and contests and game shows and everything. Yes. And and, and even and even the sitcoms, the landscape changed because they became very snarky, like not schmucky guys like me, like hipster kind of guys. Just hey, dude, and you know, just yeah, just <laughs> something else. So that's right up, but I didn't miss it because I was loving, you know, uh, animation and there's no pretense, no self-importance. You know, and it's, you're just there, you make the same money, and you're just there for less time, and you don't run throughs, and, you know, it's very easy going. So that afforded me to not be desperate and chase the buck, and and I just wanted to be creative. And my friend Steve Scrobin, I wrote a short story about a friendship between me and this guy, Vinny. Because let's try to make this a movie, and... Steve was a writer, producer on Raymond for all nine years, and with his own money, he did a documentary about Ralph Nader that went to Sundance. Yeah. And so he had he had the bug to do his own thing with his money. Um, so he wanted to do something else, and he wanted to adapt the story about me and Vinny to a movie, but then he got so busy, he was writing on sitcoms, so I took the liberty and wrote it. And it took us like another year or so to figure out how we make a movie because we're in the sitcom world. Yeah. We don't own independent films, a line producer, how you do it. So finally, we just bumped into some people and some guy, you know, a line producer, figured out how much it would cost. Steve put his money up. And we did this quirky little movie that went to Slam Dance. We won an award Boston Film Festival. And, and, and Steve, you know... It was just like, you know, a quirky little movie. And it's based on a true story. Yeah, right? a true story that took place right in this apartment about... My friend Vinny was agoraphobic, the happiest agoraphobic. I described him as the adoring parent I never had, because everything I did was an adventure to him, because he didn't go out. Going to the video store, the post office, was an adventure to him, and then he came to stay with me here. And it's almost like a combination of Midnight Cowboy and... Mm. You know, that kind of, obviously we're not male prostitutes, but, you know, um, but that kind of sad, funny, pathetic guys that fall through the cracks. Yeah, no, I mean, it was really a, a, a interesting, fun, sad movie. I mean... Yeah, it doesn't fit in categories very easily. Yeah, no, I mean, it really captured this sort of interesting relationship uh, that if it, it would, it'd be hard to believe it wasn't based on reality. Right, it's funny. Some people say, 
is it true? And I, I go, well, if you have the license to make things up, wouldn't you make it crazy, like the building falls down or what chase? But yeah, it's a very yeah, subtle. Yeah, or his baseball card collection's worth like a million dollars and he sells it. Yeah, yeah. right. So yeah, it, it was. I mean, that's why it's a hard move. The category it's not quite comedy like romance, not drama, drama. It's not those kind of weird, quirky, independent movies like Happiness. So yeah, it fits into a doesn't fit in, but we're confident it'll find some audience. Some yeah, you know, it's gotten some recognition, which is good. Yeah, no, it's we've had a lot of fun on the. Um, the, uh, what's it called, the uh, festival circuit. Yeah. Now tell me a little bit, and this sort of starts to venture sort of into the realm of podcasts. You're working on a, you've got a web series you've been Yeah, so, so this is the stuff going in a circle of stand-up and acting, and the stuff that's most rewarding is just being creative in my own voice. So I'm doing a thing for Adam.com called The Gate Show, where I'm a security guard at a studio lot, and I think I have a talk show. These three-minute little web things where we had Bob Saget, Sarah Silverman, Fred Willard, and um, Howie Mandel, and I'm hoping to do more. And basically, I do a little monologue as a security guard, I have a sidekick, and and when cars are waiting to go in the lot, I, they, I think I'm interviewing them, I think they're on my show, and little desk pieces, so... It's, it's so much fun. And how'd you come up with the, the concept for the, for the show? I, I had the idea for a while, but it kind of backburned a thing. You know, what could I do with it? You know, it's not cheap to get a studio lot, or where are you going to do this, or how, how am I going to bother celebrities? But then I heard Adam.com was, you know, doing web series, small three, four minute episodes. And um, a little secret I'll give you is I asked my friends what I could do it with. I go, if we can't get them to come there, can we make it look like they're pulling off? So with Sarah Silva and Howie Mandel, we went to them, and, and it looks like they're pulling up. It's like, all right, I could, I could get some celebrity favors. I could, hopefully, they'll, at least, I'll go, look, three minutes, I'll pull, we'll go to you and make it look like they're pulling up. So when you say, what do you mean go to you? Meaning, um, like, for example, um, we had to find a, a lot. So this guy, I, I did it with, he and this guy built a little guard gate booth. Oh, okay. And ship it there. Because we couldn't find a place, but if if on shoot day, you know, we can't get uh, Sarah Silverman to, you know, I don't want to bother her, drive down there for free and do me a favor. So we just drove to her house. With She's, the guard gate? No, 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 no. She sat in a car. Oh, okay. And, it, and, and we shoot her just talking. And then there with a double, the same car, it looks like she's pulling up. Oh, okay. And then a close-up of, of her talking to me, and same with Howie Mandel. So I went, wow. You know, um... Kind of allows you to do almost anybody. Yeah. It, all, all, if, I, if I go, look, I'll just go to you five minutes, we'll shoot you in a car, and that's it. And then it looks like they're pulling up. So so that, that took away a headache of... Because I had the idea, like I said, but I go, you know, who am I going to get? Like, you know, maybe me, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, some guy like me that's not really a name, you know. But it afford, it, it, it really made it easier, and it was so much fun to do. It's like a TV playhouse kind of... So how many have you done so far? We've only done four. They, it's just an experiment. Like, that's their version of a pilot. And now I'm hoping to do more. I will do more in some way, you know, so... Um, it certainly seems with those 
the four people you have in your first sort of premiere episodes, you could go and say, hey, look who's done the first ones. Yeah, it's a way to uh, either show it to other celebrities or, yeah, bring it around. Um, I mean, it's hard because there's so much stuff on the net. Oh, of course. Please. But uh, but this is really what I want to do. Like, I, I wrote other quirky movies like Fred and Vinny and, you know, that... Yeah, it's not a script like, again, like Ben Stiller meets Will Ferrell and they spit at each other, a Paul Rudd kind of thing. But um, but just in my voice, just uh, that's what I wanted to do, just acting and voiceover, but just try to keep being creative, like you're doing the podcast. It's, you know, something stimulating. Yeah, and you're, you're, you have tremendous control, which is fantastic. I mean... You know, I've written a number of scripts. I got lucky and sold a few to the Hallmark Channel, but oh. a lot of other ones just sit in a drawer. And yeah. you, you don't have the money to do them. You don't. You can't. Who do you get them in front of? And right. I mean, well, look, uh, I got lucky with Fred and Vinny, but Steve's not going to put up money up for right now another movie. But right. But the quirky stuff, yeah. And but yeah, with the Gate Show, I'm able to. Uh, it's cheap enough. And in the meantime, I'm just going to do like video blogs as the character with my security guard uniform. I just talk into my thing and give updates and yelling, ranting about Leno, you know. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that's the smart way to, to leverage these things is to use all these things that are free. Yeah. You know, whether it's Facebook, whether it's blogs, whether it's Twitter, a combination of those things and, and build this awareness. Right. For the show. One thing I, I realized, like, uh, we did four on Glad, but to get someone excited about something, people like regularity, even if it's not that great, but if it's coming out every few days, so I'm just going to keep it going with just on, you know, my Twitter, you know, and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, a little put stuff out as a character before I do more episodes. Is, is one hope to find somebody who wants to make this into a series? Yeah. yeah I mean, I would love it where... Realistically, if I pitched it, they go, uh-huh. But if it became very popular from the web, it would help it, like maybe an Adult Swimish kind of show, or Comedy Central, or even if something on the web that had a big following, I'd love it. It's just so much fun to do. Yeah. Yeah, my, my hope is to, is to create something that expands to some world I can't foresee. Yeah. Uh, but you're still getting acting gigs. Uh-huh. Time to time. I saw you recently on... Um I don't think you have any lines. I got cut sort of from the change-up. That's what it was. It was yeah, it was so silly to fly me to Atlanta, and <laughs> yeah. I had all these lines. I thought, I, I knew there had to be lines, because it's like, yeah. well, I, so I saw I'm them, there. I saw you, why, why is Fred there, and he has nothing that he's saying. I, and I'm in Atlanta. Yeah. Well, you didn't know the Atlanta part. Uh, and then they, they flew me back there to reshoot, and all my lines were gone, but there was some weird continuity thing. This other guy was out there, and so he was bringing, what's his name, Jason... Uh, Bacon? No, the other guy, I'm sorry, Ryan Reynolds. And yeah. So he had to be the guy that gave him my lines, and I was just standing there. So, yeah, it's, it was kind of silly. Hmm. And I, Yeah, I just did a thing in Fran Drescher's new show, oh, okay. uh, Happily Divorced. So, yeah, no, uh, animation, Penguin to Madagascar. And yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to... Uh, I'm on Twitter, Fred underscore Stoller, just doing stupid jokes, just just trying to... I, I enjoy doing it that way. I don't need to be at a club, you know. And the uh, the web series is at... The Gate Show at adam.com, and it's also okay. on YouTube. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, you don't do a podcast. 
I think there's a lot of people that are getting into podcasts that have never done anything else. It's sort of like getting into stand-up. You know, I, you know, some people have asked me to do their podcast, and I, don't, I wonder if they even have one. Some guy tracked me down on Facebook. <laughs> you know, um, any advice for people doing just podcasts? Just in terms of, I mean, just that frustration you had getting into comedy. Uh, what's, if you could have any advice for somebody who's going, I don't even know how to get started doing it. Or, not that you do podcasts, but the same thing. I mean, you got into stand-up without any real kind of, uh, you know, somebody right. to take your hand and say, here's how you do it. Well, these, these people getting into it now are fortunate in that they could just do it and, and not wait for permission. You know what I mean? Yeah. Either a club, you just talk, right? And yeah. if you have the right equipment, then yeah. and on, maybe on Face, there's one guy on Face, on Twitter, he just follows a lot of comedians and makes jokes. And, and then eventually you know who he is and then he asks you will you be on my podcast oh funny so maybe just whoever you like follow them on Twitter and uh, reply to things they say and maybe make them funny then slip them a message hey I, I got a podcast will, will you be on it and most of them will say yes if you don't have to go to them if you just call them up yeah and at the same time there's a lot of podcasts that, that they don't have guests it's Two or three guys sitting around just, you know, yakking, you know, and they're not, yeah. they're not stand-ups, they're not improvisers, uh, and quite frankly, a number of them aren't funny, but they're trying to be funny, they're trying to get funny. Right. Um, and it's just, it's sort of interesting, I don't know what's propelling those people to want to do that style of conversational show. It's almost like there's, there's kind of no template for it. So where's well, weird in a way, it's a double-edged sword, because in one way... They're lucky because they're in a world where they could just do it at their apartment, but if then they're going to make believe, then, but you're not really facing the rejection and right. you know, going to a club and hearing the feedback. Yeah. So, in one way, it's safe. You know, all these people on these IMBD chat rooms, oh, the show sucks because the anonymity of doing it from their yes. apartment or commenting on stuff. So, you can be a blogger or think in the safety of your own place, but then again, yeah, it's it's kind of weird that you kind of yeah everyone could do that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, I'll put I'll I'll have a link up to uh, to the web series uh, on the blog that goes with this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, maybe I'll I'll take if I can just a snippet out of one of those little episodes, maybe one part of your exchange with somebody. You know, just sure. put the audio part on this podcast. Oh, to great! Kind of go along with the the interview. Yeah, which would be cool. Any other questions or anything? Or? I don't think so. Anything you want to say to the the blog listeners at large? You know, people will ask advice about should you go to comedian school or this. And I, the only thing, the good thing about it's hard to give advice because it's always so general. Yeah. You know, unless it's specific advice. But the only good thing, let's say, about acting class or comedian school is it's good to be with people at your level to share information. Oh, there's an open mic, or this guy, or that. So, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, it's... it's so don't the, be in a vacuum. The networking helps. Right, the networking of just... Not networking so much where you're schmoozing, but more camaraderie where, you, you know, you just... Yeah, don't be so isolated. Like, even being isolated for me, like going on the... Uh, 
like the web or something like I, I, I saw like on Facebook you did something for the um, Huffington yeah. and I said oh could you maybe review my movie because you that's right so, so it's like being a detective you just got to be open to uh, stuff yeah and so if for comedians out there just find people at your level that are scrambling for the same stuff and you share information like oh there's an open mic like I said or there's, they're looking for people at this thing. That's great. Yeah. Well, please follow me on Twitter. Okay. Uh, Fred underscore Stoller. Watch the thing. Um, well, Fred, thanks very much. Well, thank you. I'm sorry you came to L.A. when it's chilly. Oh, it's fine. This portion of Succotash is brought to you by Henderson's Turtleneck Slacks. If you're a gentleman of proportion who tends to leave nothing to the imagination whenever you squat down... Or if you've ever been mistaken for a bike rack just by bending over to tie your shoe, maybe it's time to consider checking out a pair of Henderson's turtleneck slacks. Where most pants end at the waistline, Henderson's turtleneck slacks are just getting started. You get a generous three inches of ribbed cotton fabric that both gives and supports where it counts, the gut and buttocks. What's more... There's no need to worry about whether your belt matches your shoes. With Henderson's turtleneck slacks, you just pull them up and forget them. The ingenious turtleneck waist keeps your pants in place. And even if you have to jump around, we guarantee you'll never show anything so much as an inch of butt crack or a sliver of that ample full moon. It's always tucked away safe and sound in your Henderson's turtleneck slacks. Originally designed for plumbers, construction workers, and priests, you can now pick up a pair of Henderson's turtleneck slacks wherever fine pantaloons are sold. And now, back to Succotash. Hey guys, Wool Durst here with my 8th annual Top 10 Comedic News Stories of the Year. Now, please be warned, this list is not to be confused with the top ten legitimate news stories of the year. No, no, no. They're as different as three bean chili and paisley bow ties. Like strip mining slag heaps and little rubber duckies, wired-haired dwarf goats, and plastic dinnerware. Now, these are the events from the year of our Lord, 2011, that most lent themselves to mocking and scoffing and taunting in ample amounts. Number ten. Wisconsin Senate plays hide-and-seek with Governor Scott Walker. They ran across the border to Illinois and hid out for a month. Yeah, like Illinois doesn't have enough problems with politicians doing nothing. Number nine, the budget battles. You had to admire the year-long Republican negotiating stance. No, 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 no. What are you guys, four? Number eight, the Super Committee. Slower than a slug on Thorazine, less powerful than a soggy Kleenex, unable to compromise in a million years. Number seven, Donald Trump. I want to see Barack Obama's birth certificate. Yeah, well, we want to see your DNA. First, you get to prove to us that you're a carbon-based life form. Number six, Rick Perry. The candidate for those of you who could never cozy up to George Bush due to all of his intellectual elitism. Number five, Occupy Wall Street. Giving the whole country a chance to experience Burning Man only without any of that playa dust or art. Number four, Herman Cain. His campaign fell victim to a classic case of he said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said. Number three, Barack Obama. 
continually compromising with the Republicans the same way the Titanic compromised with that iceberg. Number two, the death of Osama bin Laden. He collected porn, used herbal Viagra, and if you believe the videos, he hogged the remote. Hate Americans? Looks like he was practicing to be one. And the number one comedic news story of the year 2011, Anthony Weiner. And it was his own damn fault. He had the choice of pronunciation. Could have gone with Weiner, still a lousy name for a politician, or he could have gone whole hog. Yes, we spell it W-E-I-N-E-R, but it's pronounced Schultz. For Succotash, the podcast of comedy podcasts, I'm Will Durst. That is our friend Will Durst. You can find him at willdurst.com. Also tweeting at Will Durst on Twitter. Thanks to Fred Stoller for letting us visit him in his home. Uh, if you look on our blog, you'll see a picture of uh, Fred with his cat, Mitchell. And um, gosh, we only had time for one other podcast clip today, which is less than I thought we'd have. But that's the way this format will go. Next time, we'll have a full rack of your favorite podcasts, also some you've never heard of before. Until next time, I'm your host, Mark Hershon, and please remember to pass the Succotash. You've been listening to Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon, brought to you by Henderson's Pants. And imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuccotashShow.com or at Suckatash Show on iTunes and even at Suckatash Show on your smartphone Stitcher app. Follow Suckatash on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Friend Suckatash on Facebook. Email us at marc at SuckatashShow.com or just pick up that phone and give Suckatash a ring at 1-818-921-7212. Suckatash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino at Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please... Pass the succotash.